Hello, everybody, and welcome to our 105th episode of Greater Than Code. My name is Astrid County, and I'm here with my great friend, John Sawyers. Thank you, Astrid, and I'm here with Janelle Klein. Thanks, John, and I am here with the wonderful, awesome Jessica Care. Good morning. Thanks, Janelle. And today, we have a special guest, Maurice Cherry serves as marketing, design, and communications lead at Glitch, the friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. Before Glitch, Maurice was principal and creative director at Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. These days, Maurice is perhaps best known for his award-winning podcast, Revision Path, which showcases black designers, developers, and digital creators from all over the world. Other projects of Maurice's include the Black Weblog Awards, the web's longest-running event celebrating black bloggers, video bloggers, and podcasters, 28 Days of the Web, and the Year of Tea. Maurice is the 2018 recipient of the Stephen Heller Prize for Cultural Commentary from AIGA. He was named as one of GDUSA's People to Watch in 2018 and was included in the 2018 edition of The Route 100. He was number 60. Their annual list of the most influential African Americans, ages 25 to 45. Maurice has a bachelor's degree in math from Morehouse College and a master's degree in telecommunications management. Maurice, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we forgot to tell you, we're always going to ask you, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? My superpower, I think, is probably extreme empathy. And I guess the way that I've acquired it is by just being in a lot of different situations growing up as well as um, being a professional designer and working across other different fields. It's given me a lot of exposure to people from a bunch of different cultures, from a bunch of different walks of life. So I'm kind of always able to see issues from several different viewpoints. Um, And so I hope that helps with the work that I do in terms of storytelling and also just making great experiences for people online. I would think that it would. Some people who have that that gift of empathy find it a burden, but you do describe it as a superpower. I think that's great. You remarked that it helps you in your work? Oh, absolutely. Um, so, for example, one of the projects that I'm working on right now, well, it's, it's a project through Glitch. We are uh, co-producing a podcast with Vox Media Podcast Network called Function. And it's hosted by Anil Dash, who's the CEO of Glitch. And so what we're able to do, even when we're coming up with episode ideas, or even when we're thinking about guests to have, or different perspectives that we want to reach through the show, I'm able to draw from a wealth of experiences to give a more nuanced and diverse and inclusive type of look into these issues that maybe other podcasts may not have. How did you get all those diverse experiences? just living and being black in America. I mean, (laughs) that's that's the best way that I can put it. Uh, There's a lot of times where, you know, you have to perhaps code switch in different environments or even just, you know, the experiences I've had working and dealing with clients and things like that. I'm always in different situations. And so that's forcing me, well, force perhaps is not the best word, but it is allowing me to adapt in a number of different ways and draw from these different experiences in order to uh, do as well as I can within that given environment. What is code switch? So code switching uh, or code switch, aside from being a popular podcast on NPR, the concept of code switching is something where you are perhaps changing your behavior or language or attire, for example, based on the environment that you're in. So for example, I'm from the South. I'm from Selma, Alabama. Um, I talk differently when I'm at home with my family and with friends than I would be if I were giving a speech or a keynote in San Francisco or something like that. There might be more colloquialisms. I might have a more relaxed tone, etc. That kind of code switching. And I mean, language is probably, I think, the uh, most prevalent indicator of code switching, but it's something that I believe we all do probably, even on subconscious levels. Like for example, if you were to get a call from a bill collector, you might have a different tone of voice that you put on when they come on the phone. That's different from when you're talking with your friends. That's code switching. Yeah. That's a really good concept. In the past, I used to think that it was like integrity 
to not do that very often to like just be me right yeah, i think the older i've gotten i've i do it less mainly because it's just tiring but i mean there are just inst- instances though where it happens you know if you're at a more formal event for example you're not going to act the same way that you do with your friends on friday night it's just not the decorum of where you're at i mean that's that's an example of course, there's also educational examples, there's workplace examples, etc. It's just different based on the environment. It's very contextual. I think like being sensitive to that context can be accommodating of others in some cases. And sometimes that accommodation, you don't have much of a choice if you want to stay there. And other times it's just nice. That's true. So if we're spending all this energy accommodating others... Are the others getting a benefit out of this context or are they basically holding on to the same exact kind of tensions and we just keep doing this anyway? Uh, I think that depends on who we mean when we talk about who the others are. Again, like it's it, it's based on the environment. Well, well um, let's take a specific example. So you, you mentioned okay. tech conference in San Francisco and you're doing a keynote and that has a certain feel to it. And you also said that it was exhausting to do this. And so I'm wondering, are these contexts set up such that they are generally unhealthy? Like, is there a better way that we can frame things to have a context where it feels safer to just be you? I think that sort of skirts into the discussion about inclusivity and how inclusive some spaces are. So for example, if it is a tech conference in San Francisco, more than likely most of the attendees may be of the same socioeconomic class, same ethnicity, or at least are drawing from the same set of experiences. That may be very different from what my socioeconomic level is or my set of experiences. Uh, So it can be exhausting if there's not a level of accommodation on both ends. Oftentimes with code switching, it's sort of a one-way transaction. It's not really something that is bi-directional in that way. Uh, so that's how it can be exhausting, particularly if you are in a position where you have to present yourself, if you're representing your company, you know, in a big way or something like that. So that code switching, yes, it's one way. The person with the interesting, different experience code switches to like fit in with the majority or at least not make people uncomfortable who don't like being uncomfortable. And and yet to get that experience the other way, for me to put myself in a situation that I've never been in before and couldn't code switch into if I wanted to, writing is really good for that. The interesting thing about writing, unlike a lot of other forms of media, is that in order to, like when you're reading somebody else's writing, you actually have to start getting into the way that they think because you can't even understand it if you're trying to be too objective. You just really have to start talking through somebody else's thought process, which is helpful in experiencing something that you don't experience. Yeah, I'm trying to be like, can can I get some of your superpower? Because <laughs> you used the word forced, and I agree that's a negative connotation, but it's totally true. I'm not forced to code switch that often. Well, I think kind of to, to piggyback off that earlier point, writing sort of helps to, I think, equalize the comprehension of what you're trying to say, hopefully. Uh, of course, we all know that words mean things. We can certainly infer things from language and stuff like that, but it sort of strips away presentation when you're writing and just sort of leaves you to focus on the topics that are in play. Yeah, I was thinking about the the sort of two-sided nature of the code switching where on the one hand, you can think of it as you're optimizing your presentation so that you fit in with the group for whatever benefits, you know, being a, a non-disruptive member of that group gets you. But the flip side is you have to put all this energy into figuring out what codes you need to present and, you know, switching and, and modifying your behavior as you're behaving it, you know, in the group so that you fit in. And, and I can see how and, and also, you know, to some degree feeling like maybe you're not representing your true self in that sense. So. I can think uh, there's like a very two-sided aspect to it. Right. I mean, I think people certainly who are on different parts of the spectrum of diversity, whether that's race, gender, ability, sexual orientation, etc. We're all code switching in one way or another throughout whatever different environments 
that we are in. And so, yeah, that can take a lot of energy just to make sure that you're presenting yourself in a certain way or you're talking in a certain way where you can be understood or taken seriously. And again, this is all, you know, just sort of based on that context. The context can be, I mean, even when you're just talking to one different person, they, you have a certain amount of shared reality to base conversations of with any given individual you talk to. And then there's like a cultural context, which is almost like a average norm setting for like the group of people that you're around of where's that middle ground norm of kind of this mirror effect of fitting in. And I feel like some context that we end up having it like feels like all this energy is like pushing down on your soul. You know, it's like, I, I want to, I want to come out. I want to be me. I want people to see me. I want to be able to connect with people, but I go into these contexts where I have to push myself down in order to do that. Whereas in other cases, you're just sort of contexting switching to have more of a shared language, but it's not so oppressive feeling. And I'm concerned that of all the things we have going on right now are related to a soulful loneliness of not being seen and having so much pain around these things. And that one of the things that we can do as a community is to figure out how to create more safe environments to have the discussions that we need to have as a community. And I realize there's some context switching going on, but it seems like of all things, you being able to see all these different perspectives and backgrounds and extreme empathy, you'd have a lot of wisdom to share about what optimizing for safety and being your true self and being able to share all your differences and find beauty in our differences, like that you would have wisdom about the vision of what that looks like. No, I totally agree with that. I mean, certainly as if we want to place this in the larger context of diversity in design or inclusion in design, really, really both concepts, that's very important to keep in mind. The thing on my mind right now is that software just isn't all that important compared to all of the human stuff that's going on right now. And, you know, we can all get upset about things in different ways, or we can find some constructive ways to channel our energy toward building better. And I think we all have different ideas of what better would look like, what kind of direction we want to move and try and create those types of environments and contexts that we need. And I don't have eyes like you do. And I'm not sure what question to ask exactly, but I guess it it would be, what ideas do you have for how to create a tech conference environment culture that felt safe and nurturing and People were able to like make real connections and not feel like you have to code switch to an extreme or or like, I mean, how do we do less of that? I guess. I do want to push back on something you said earlier. We can, we can get back to that, but to talk about the conferences, uh, one thing that I've been seeing with a lot more conferences is that they are starting to include larger amounts of social elements within the regular programming. I believe sometimes what happens with conferences is they follow a very standard model. You have your keynotes, you've got your workshops, your lunch, etc. And that time for social conversation is just sort of inherently baked into the format because there are pauses between talks and, you know, there's bathroom breaks, etc. Uh, but oftentimes even that level of of interaction can be strained because people are trying to fulfill maybe one or two basic human needs like I got to go pee. I got to eat. I got to step outside and take, you know, some fresh air, et cetera. And then you have conversations sort of inherently layered on top of that because of how the structure of the conference is. What I've been seeing some events do is actually build in large blocks of time to just be social with attendees. And so maybe that is an opening party. Maybe it's a closing party. Uh, I was just at XOXO back in September and they devoted an entire half day to just meeting up with other attendees. 
across different affinity groups that were kind of mapped out within our Slack community for the conference. And I thought that was really great. It gives you a chance to see and talk to people whom you may not get a chance to see and talk to if you're just looking across an exhibition hall or something like that. And instead, you're in an environment where you already have a shared interest. And so therefore, it makes it easier to talk to them, to get to know them, hopefully, et cetera. I like that sort of thing. I've been seeing a lot more conferences do that kind of thing. Yeah, the DevOps Days conferences have been doing open spaces uh, for a little while now that is really interesting. It's not exactly social, but it's a much more interactive way of looking at uh, uh, the topics that are being discussed at the conference. And I guess if people who don't know what those are, it's basically uh, a sort of a crowdsourced topic groups. So at, at a given point in the conference, the um, we'll put up a board for people to suggest topics and then the topics will get time slots. And then if you're interested in talking about that topic, possibly with a speaker who spoke on it earlier in the conference, then you just gather at that spot and you've got 40 minutes to an hour to just get into it in whatever format makes sense at the time. And that's a, it's a good way of being a little bit more interactive. Yeah. It's kind of like slightly derivative of the, the camp style of conferences where people will put up a topic and then whomever can speak on it, you know, they can choose to do so. Uh, I've been seeing conferences do that, that kind of thing as well, just to spurn more, I guess, activity among attendees. I've seen that happen too. Yeah. Yeah. Like the unconference food camp kind of stuff. I feel like a good example for what code switching is like that maybe a lot of people can relate to is teen movies where they show what it's like to go to high school and you're in your little group. And then like some kid, or oftentimes they do like where the, the girl becomes like the pretty girl, tries to join the popular group, and then is still trying to hold on to the old friends, but now in the popular group, and you have to be different people in different places, and that can be really stressful. And I think some of the answer around like, well, how do you try to empathize a little more with people who go through that is to take yourself out of comfort zones. Because a lot of times, if you're not in a majority group, you already feel uncomfortable all the time. And you're kind of forced to understand yourself and then understand this other group and how they function and how they behave and fit in. Whereas that majority group does not have to understand you. And it can be helpful to put yourself in circumstances where you're, you're not like everybody else and see what it's like to be an outsider coming in and figuring out how you're going to fit in and who you're going to talk to and how you're going to behave, which will give you a little more perspective for those who don't even get to choose it. I agree with that. I I do. I mean, I think, though, what people have to get over is that fear of discomfort or or just being uncomfortable in a space like that. Uh I'll I'll give you an example. So we're recording this right now at the end of October. Uh, Coming up in a few weeks is Afrotech, which I think is the second or third annual uh, tech conference that Blavity puts on in California. And I remember discussing that with some people a few months ago. These were not black people. I'll, I'll preface by saying that. I remember discussing it with some people before. And well, they had never heard of the event, so I was telling them about it. But then they were also skeptical about attending because they said, well, isn't that just for black people? <laughs> I'm like, well, I don't think so. I mean, I'm pretty sure if you pay the ticket price, you can go. Like, don't let Afro in the name fool you. If you want to go, you can go. But that could be an opportunity where someone that's not from that from that group can attend and maybe learn some insights or learn from people who they've never heard of before, learn about events or even, you know, kind of the code switching kind of scenarios that we've discussed before. Learn that those are very real things and not just something that someone typed out as a microaggression on Twitter, you know. Well, that's a good one. And if you go, you might not feel comfortable, which is a great thing to get used to. Right, because the inverse is usually true. Yeah. So how do you get over that feeling of discomfort? What kind of things have worked for you? For me, it helps to realize that my presence there is necessary, even just from an optics perspective. So while I may not feel comfortable being there, I think it's important for them to see me there and to know that the reason that I'm in the room might be the same reason that they're in the room. Now, granted, that could be different. If it's a student, they might go because, you know, they have an assignment or whatever. But I still think it's important for them to be able to see, particularly in these kind of majority spaces, that, hey, there are, you know, people of color that are part of this industry. 
and that they are here to talk about things and learn about things. I know back when I did my presentation, Where Are the Black Designers, back in 2015 for the first time at South by Southwest, there were so many people who would approach me and talk about, well, they've worked on development teams or they've been to conferences and they've been the only black person. And I get it. I've been that person. I'm still that person. <laughs> you know. Uh, but when I'm in those kinds of spaces and I know that I'm feeling uncomfortable, I have to realize that. And it's an undue burden. I will clearly say that it is an undue burden to feel like I have to be there to quote unquote represent but unfortunately, that's how the structure of this industry has laid out these sorts of events. So it's it, there are events where it's different like that. Like, I mean, I went to Black and Design last year. Um, I won't be going to Afrotech this year, but like those kinds of events where the lens is invariably turned away from the majority are different kinds of events that are out there to counteract that feeling. Yeah, that totally is an extra burden. And it's one you don't have to take on because you don't have to go which is terrible and backwards. And yet I like how you looked at it where the fact that you're less comfortable is entwined with something extra you're accomplishing, which is showing that yes, there are black people at these conferences and that makes everyone else feel more comfortable. Well, well I hope it makes everyone else feel more comfortable. I've certainly <laughs> been in places where that has not been the case. Yeah. Where, uh, I, meant, I meant like I, other black people. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Yeah, there's certainly that, that level of uh, shared elation when you see another one of us in the space. Like, oh, it's just it's not just you. It's me. And <laughs> we kind of like the like the color purple Makidata like <laughs> hand clap thing going on. So, yeah, absolutely. I feel like we kind of latched onto something you said and took it in an interesting direction. But I want to know what you want to talk about, about your work. I do want to say, and I don't know if we are kind of able to go into this. And I certainly oh, yeah. don't want to do it. Oh, yeah, we can go into it. Spoken about. Um, <laughs> I forgot who said it earlier. And, and maybe it was just in the context of which was it, which it was said about how software is not that important. And we have to focus on the human stuff. Like, that was Janelle. I under, okay, I, I understand that 100%. But unfortunately, kind of the place that we're at on the web now is largely because of the human decisions that have been made about software. Like, for example, we hear about data breaches. We hear about stuff from Facebook. We're hearing about things about artificial intelligence, etc. All of that is stuff that we do need to be concerned about, especially if we're looking at how, for example, we're giving away willingly tons and tons of personal data to these services online. And I guess we inherently trust them, but it's like, what is the cost of that if there's a data breach or something like that? Like, I have to replace my debit card now pretty much every four or five months because, oh, now it's been leaked out somewhere and I've got to change all my passwords and stuff now. Like, things like that. I don't know if I'm explaining that right, but I just kind of wanted to push back a little bit against that. So <laughs> we can branch off into, into something else. We don't need to include that that part. I just No, I love that part. We're including that part. Okay. Yeah, I... I don't think you're wrong. I think these are all related things and that the relationships we have in the context of our organizations and us not talking about things that we need to talk about and switching into work mode, which is a code switch, right? That we do at a business level. We're all kind of making decisions as an organization about what's good for the company inside and what's good for the community outside of that, whether that be customers or how our you know, software affects the world. And I think we've got to this point in software that the conversation around ethics and raising the bar in that, you know, it's not okay to, to just figure out how to exploit people and addict them to your machine as a means to make money when it has real societal effects on the world. And when I look at software companies which is like almost every company you can say now is like a software company these days, right? If you look at the sort of attitude, the context of the management world versus the attitude context of the engineering world of the, of the doing world, the builders out there that are doing, doing the, making all this stuff come to life. There's like two different islands, ways of thinking about what is okay. And if we're going to make software, more responsibly as organizations, then I think 
the engineering world is probably in the best position to stand up and lead a human decision-making oriented movement around building better software, but also standing up for people inside and out. Uh, I don't know if I fully agree with that. <laughs> I, don't, I, think, I think the engineers are what got us in this position. And then that's not to say that they lack the, the empathy or the ethics or et cetera to get us out of it, but I don't know if the same architects are also the ones who need to be the ones to tear it down. Agreed. I was at a conference recently where I was talking to a room of social scientists and I was basically pushing them, because many of them work in tech, that they need to make it a bigger priority to really get in the room and be on the team who's making the product as opposed to allowing their role to be kind of an accessory to the end goal of getting the user to be engaged. Partly because there is a lot of technology that is driving everybody's everyday lives that was not made thinking really holistically about what people need, want, do. It just kind of mirrors, in a lot of cases, our worst abilities because it's expedient to getting people engaged. I don't think that engineers are, you know, always purposely like sitting back behind their computer screens laughing at the evil they're going to produce in the world. But I do think that there has to be more inclusive teams in sense of what the skills are that are being brought to the table and what is being weighed as important when it comes to what people make and how they make them. And I think part of the problem is teams like social scientists who actually know how to do some of this stuff are being way too quiet and and being way too observant instead of actually doing and learning how to be a part of the people who do. And there's other groups as well who could probably be really useful in trying to make better systems and more inclusive systems. Uh, but they're kind of waiting in line to be asked and they need to start doing more. And I think that there's a lot more of engineers learning that there's other things that need to be considered, but that doesn't mean that they know how to do it. And it seems like that's where we are right now. Yeah, I, I I totally agree with that. Certainly, uh, these are some of the things that we are looking to discuss and break down on Function. It's a shameless plug. Function with Neil Dash every Monday. Uh, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, but those are some of the things that we're trying to think about. You know, not just through Function, but also at uh, at Glitch as we work to build this friendly community where people can build the best stuff on the web. How do we ensure the health of our community? How do we ensure that? The apps and the projects and things that are being created are, you know, in a very kind of holistic mindset with our values and things of that nature. Uh, and yeah, I think the tech industry as a whole is sort of coming to that reckoning that, yes, they've built these tools and these algorithms and they've gotten to be very large. And the public, you know, writ large has signed over a lot of that data. But really, is that it? That's sort of like almost one step removed from the government having it in a way, especially as the government is sort of, you know, asking Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, to testify about data breaches and things of that nature. It's not that far off from a Black Mirror-esque type of a future if it continues along this route, I think. So certainly as, as time is progressing, we need to have more of these conversations, which will hopefully spur more change. I mean, I don't want us to sort of get into the, the habit of analysis paralysis where we're so busy discussing the problem that nothing gets done, but certainly being able to talk about it with as, as many different types of people as possible. Again, having those diverse and inclusive perspectives uh, will hopefully help to change the system as a whole. It's interesting to me listening to the things that are resonating with you or, you know, where, where you have differing opinions. And one of the things you said was the engineers are the ones building this stuff. And I look at my world and I see engineers that say, okay, what's the next ticket? And the game to play is how many tickets can I get closed today? And the conversation about what we're building and the impact it's going to have on the world are often not conversations being had, or if they are, they're the things people will talk about, you know, over beer. But at, at the end of the day, a lot of people are just like, the uh, prowess is in the design of the artifact as opposed to that holistic view. And I look at the problems in this world 
as a dysfunction related to the the relationship of sort of the organizational whole, like this this wall of disconnection between management world and the engineering world. And largely you've got management making decisions in conjunction with product deciding something to do and creating a backlog of tickets for the engineers that they just sort of like do without a lot of thought. And so, and you're creating this different context for engineers to build a more holistic kind of way outside of that context. But it seems like the business machine, whatever the code switch is associated with fitting in to the business machine seems to be the thing that is ultimately driving a lot of this bad, scary software into the world. Janelle, (laughs) did you just say the engineers do this because they want to fit in? That's interesting. (laughs) Well, I think kind of what you're saying is that with the engineers, they see the problem. How does the saying go? If if you work like a hammer, every problem looks like a nail or something like that. Something, something that. If if your tool is a hammer, right? Everything looks like a nail. Exactly. Uh, So yeah, if the tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Uh, So perhaps that is the mindset where engineers are approaching it, where they're seeing these problems to fix as all being software problems, but not necessarily considering the social impacts that this technology is having on society or even putting in place any kind of guidelines, explicit or implicit, to ensure that a social responsibility is fulfilled through the work that they do. And Astrid just said that engineers don't have the tools to understand or predict the social consequences and the people who do aren't in the fray. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, one of the things that we have done here at Glitch, and this was through uh, Anil Dash last year, he released the Developer Relations Bill of Rights. And one of the articles in that Bill of Rights is particularly about there being explicit ethical and social guidelines to the work that you're doing, like social practices, community goals, etc. with the goal being that it enables effective, consistent enforcement that builds trust in the community over time, which I think right now that trust has been heavily, heavily Heavily, heavily eroded. Is that trust from developers, from people, from users? I would think at this point it's from everybody. The engineers don't necessarily trust their workplace in terms of if there's a shift between personal ethics. The users don't trust the service because the data has been breached. Or the users don't trust the service because they don't know what is happening to their data or how it's being used. Um, I can give you an example of that, a very recent one, actually. So I just came back from San Francisco from speaking. And one of my coworkers was mentioning, you know, we're putting our profiles up on AngelList. And for some reason, AngelList sorts the schools that you went to based on some like internal popularity algorithm or whatever. Uh, so instead of you listing the order of the schools you went to, like, you know, graduate, undergrad, doctorate, it may list your undergrad more heavily because it's a more well-known school than perhaps where you got your master's or your PhD. And like, that was the response from the company. Like it's oh, like, Oh, it's not a bug. It's a feature. And you're <laughs> like, is it not, they're, not, not really. So they're trying to help you work the system that exists. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, but that's, but that isn't a decision that they made for the user. That's not something that the user can change unless they just completely take it out. So maybe this lack of trust that's coming from all places is actually related to what you started out talking about, Maurice, which is the the lack of empathy. Since not even just particular technical systems, but the way that we work and the way that we interact also seems to lack a lot of empathy, then we get to this place where nobody trusts anyone. Yeah, and I definitely think that's where we're at right now. So how do you reestablish trust? That is a long and arduous process to do, I think, at this point. I mean, I think people now don't even trust our own civic organization. So when it comes to software, that's probably an even heavier task to consider. How do we build that trust? At this point, because I think it's been so eroded, there have to be drastic sweeping changes that have to be made. It almost... I don't want to use the word revolution because that sounds too loaded, but it almost has to be to the point where something needs to be heavily changed in a forceful way so it can be rebuilt in the right way in order to start to establish that trust. I mean, like, you know, 
I love Facebook. Facebook is a sponsor of Revision Path, but they're doing horrible in the trust department. They're <laughs> certainly, I think, as we've seen, you know, Mark Zuckerberg testify before Congress and the Senate and even things about how they haven't correctly reported the amount of data that's been breached and things of that nature. Now they've come out with a peripheral called Portal, which is like this camera that follows you around the room. Like, why would you trust a device from Facebook after they've already kind of sold your data to the highest bidder? Or it's already been breached, but they may not have told you about it in a timely fashion. Yeah, as far as how they reestablish that trust, it's not going to be through pithy emoji commercials. That's not how it's going to happen. Like, some shit has to be, like, burned to the ground. Not saying burn Facebook to the ground. Let me be clear about that. <laughs> In terms of how the trust is being has to be rebuilt, I think it has to take a drastic, if, if I want to use a code term, I guess, refactoring. Like, it, you just have to, to start over. We got to start over at this point in some way. I don't know how that looks. I don't know exactly what the first thing is that has to go. But I feel like there's all these little patches and things that are made to current harmful and existing things that are not necessarily helping move the issue in any kind of a substantial way towards you know positive change. You have mentioned like more information about if they can give you information about what they're going to do and why they're doing it. That helps build trust. In the examples of big companies, I think Microsoft is an interesting contrast to Facebook because... They used to be like the example of an anti open source company. And now they're, they've totally turned that around. How so? That they are the biggest open source contributor. They've been the biggest open source contributor on GitHub for a long time. They open source the, the CLR, like the, the platform for C sharp or the runtime anyway. Um, and the languages of C sharp, they've, they've done stuff that no one would ever have predicted. And, and the change is really gradual, but it is starting now. Whenever anyone tells me that Microsoft is a dinosaur, I'm like, no, you're the dinosaur. Read up on Microsoft lately because they're under new leadership and they really are doing things differently. Now, whether they can turn that around and, and that'll work for them, I don't know, but so far so good. I agree with that. Yeah. Certainly time will tell uh, with Microsoft, I think. Uh, and of course, they just recently acquired GitHub, uh, which I think that I think the news about that was kind of mixed at first. But now that the acquisition has fully went through, uh, yeah, only time will tell to see how it's uh, how it's going to change. Well, I think the key thing to what you're saying, Jessica, is that it takes a long time. Like you have to do the long road, because even though, for instance, Microsoft has become more open to open source, there are still people who freaked out when they purchased GitHub and when they were like, oh my God, I don't want to be in this this ecosystem because they still see them as tyrannical. So it will take a long time. And I think to build trust takes a long time. And I, and I feel like part of the problem is the trust wasn't built in the first place before it was assumed in a lot of cases. And then all kinds of horrible things happened, especially to people's data. And then now it's like, hey, remember us? We have emojis. You like us, so trust us again. It's not the right way to try to build that foundation, especially when a lot of these systems and some of the software is just part of your life. In some people's cases, against their will, it's, it's going to take a lot of effort and a lot of focused effort to try to get that trust. Yeah. I mean, I think the trust and I mean, we can take it back. I think the trust that we have given these companies at first is largely a byproduct of Web 2.0. Web 1.0, of course, was this very kind of passive viewing of content. You, you wrote something, you put it up on a website, that was it. Web 2.0 brought together, you know, user-generated content. You can have social media. There's lots more participation and usability. So I think the fact that the user was such a part of how these structures were designed and built and how features were brought on that's where that trust was sort of fostered uh so without them having to do you know like some big marketing campaign or anything uh just the fact that they were willing to listen to users and make changes based on that is what has allowed us to kind of w again willingly give a lot of this data 
to these companies that have now gotten so large. I mean, of course, we're I think we're all, we're all here in the United States. Is that is that right? All of us that are recording that in other countries, for example, that website that we may just go to as leisure is the Internet in that country. You know, if we're talking about maybe developing countries or third world countries, for example, I don't know. I just feel like it's gotten to the point where the trust that we have built up from Web 2.0, we're now kind of regretting it as we see how large these companies have gotten and how the data has been used really without any of our knowledge. Yeah, I believe in the Philippines, um, Facebook has a deal with all the telecoms so that their data is free. So basically, unless you've got tons of money, Facebook is the Internet for you. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's like that way in some uh, in some African countries as well. I know maybe a few years ago, Facebook was really trying to lure a lot of countries in Africa with that kind of free Internet promise as a way to sort of, you know, build out through the last mile, so to speak. Uh, So, yeah, it's definitely in other countries. It's more uh, I think it's more important than we probably are are considering here in the United States because we have the luxury of having multiple media sources to get our information from that are not government controlled. Yeah. And I think also you're in an interesting position right now because you're building a company, you know, glitch that's building a community and that clearly trust is going to be one of the big things that you're trying to build with your users. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about how you're doing that? Yeah, sure. Um, (laughs) I know that you all have had uh, Jen Schiffer on the show before. She's been a regular guest. Certainly, I know she can speak to this probably a lot better than I can because she's been with the company longer, but also she's really uh, the person who is overseeing a lot of our community efforts. And we are hopefully, by the time this podcast publishes, we'll we'll have more roles along the lines of like community health and things like that to make sure that it sort of generally fosters that feeling for people that are users of Glitch. Uh, We have 10 principles that kind of guide everything that we do at Glitch, particularly through the tool, as well as just how we run the company. I mean, our first value, of course, is that Glitch is for everyone. We want this to be a tool that is simple. It's welcoming. It's friendly. We try to make sure that it's friendly even through the colors that we use, the illustrations, the layout of the editor. We want it to be very approachable. And we want to know that you don't have to necessarily do this alone. So that community aspect is baked in even if you need to get help on code or if you just want to pair a program with a couple of friends or like with your instructor or something like that. Uh, We try to make sure that it's also very collaborative as well as being creative. You know, we want folks to know that learning is a fun thing to do. Coding is a very creative and expressive way to do that. And Glitch can be the canvas upon which you can make that masterpiece. I like that you put collaboration as a like a first principle that you start building from rather than, oh, well, we built this one thing that works when you're you know alone in your basement, but now we have to overhaul it in order to make it so that you can actually share it with someone else. Right. And also one of our, our values is that the users own what they create. Uh, we have absolutely no lock-in with any of the projects. You can export your code and run it anywhere that you want. You're in control of everything that you create on Glitch. Uh, so for our listeners who may not be familiar with Glitch, do you want to just talk about what, what you do there and, and why it's awesome? <laughs> well, I'd be glad to. So uh, as was mentioned at the top of the show, Glitch is the friendly community where you can build and discover the best stuff on the web. My role has been really changing a lot. So right now I serve as the marketing design and communications lead at Glitch. And so I kind of work between a lot of different things. I do a little bit of biz dev. I do some design work. I do some marketing and writing. I'm doing also some audio work, some video work. I, I kind of handle a lot of things in my particular role. That's what makes it awesome for me is that I'm never stuck doing one thing all the time. Uh, like I can pop in and do write-ups of some hot apps that are on Glitch this week, which allows me to then sort of dive into the community and see what people are working on. But then also I'm making creator videos or I'm doing voiceovers. So I'm in Audition or I'm in Premiere Pro working on building and creating some things. Or I'm talking with BizDev about who are some companies that we might want to talk to about some of the things that are on our roadmap for the future. So it kind of bounces between a lot of these sorts of things. Um, Another thing which I'm doing, which is sort of a fairly new role, is as associate producer, again, bringing this back to function. What I'm able to do now, a lot of the conversations that 
you know, we're having on this show, but also in conversations that we have internally at Glitch, we now have a medium to be able to talk to other experts and users in the field and kind of hash out some of these issues in a way that others can join in on the conversation as well. That sounds really interesting because without that sharing, you know, each company is sort of on their own to develop like their best practices for ethical data handling and for community involvement and, and all these things you're talking about. Uh, whereas if you can, you know, share it, you, like everybody can get better because the, the innovation that happens in one place can spread and everyone can benefit from, you know, one company figuring out a good way of doing these things. Absolutely. I mean, one of the main things that we want at Glitch is to help make tech more accessible, more inclusive, more empowering. And through our values that we put into not just the community, but into the software itself, that's a goal that we hope to accomplish. What people really are working to put the incredibly valuable knowledge and know-how that is the ability to develop software, we are working to spread that among people. It's really hard to spread. Books alone won't do it. YouTube videos alone won't do it. But when you work alongside someone, like Maurice is talking about, glitches enabling that, that's really how you spread understanding. Yeah, and we're seeing Glitch used in a number of different type of collaborative environments. We're seeing it done in hackathons. We're seeing it in the classroom, both K-12 through and college. We're even seeing it used internally with companies, with their dev teams. So the fact that the tool allows that level of collaboration, again, whether it's peer programming or whether you're a team working on, say, building out specs for an API or something like that, Glitch is that medium where we can allow people to work together to achieve those goals. Sweet. I'm glad y'all are building that. So, Maurice, I hear you were on a panel the other day. How was that? It was great. Uh, I was out in San Bruno, California. I was at YouTube headquarters, which was super dope. The conversation was, uh, it's an internal series that YouTube has called In Convo. And this was about diversity and inclusion in design. It was myself, Rose Q, who is the lead UX researcher for the College Board, and D Speed, who's the design director at Google. And so the three of us, along with Elizabeth Belg, who was moderating, she also works at Google, we all sort of talked about diversity in design education. We spoke about kind of the, the growth mindsets that designers should have. And each of us kind of have our unique experiences that we're able to bring to the conversation. And it was it was pretty good. I'd say the turnout was about 50 or so people. Uh, again, it was internal. So just, you know, YouTube employees. Uh, so I don't know if remnants of that conversation will be published in any sort of way. But overall, it was a really good panel. I'm glad I was able to talk to the folks there. And a lot of them walked away, I feel, at least that's what I've heard so far, just from, you know, social media and from people that have written is that they really got a lot out of it and they thought it was a, a great event to have. So tell us something that you discussed or maybe that came up about diversity in design that's not normally talked about or people may not be aware of. I, I think the first thing is trying to break out the conversation about diversity in design from the conversation about diversity in technology. Uh, oftentimes design and technology are conflated because our modern design tools from design forward tech companies are software. So that can leave out for some, you know, for some reason, illustrators and painters or graphic designers or whomever. It leaves them sort of out of that conversation. I think the two are related, but they are not the same. Just in terms of when we think about the pipeline, when we think about parental expectations, um, even as we think about prospects, in the uh, in the market, once you've graduated and you're looking to find a job, or if you haven't graduated, the the discussions are different but uh, similar. And so I think making sure to break that out to know that this is different from design and tech, and here is um, for the diversity in tech, um, and here's why. That's an important thing to talk about. So for example, I mentioned parental expectations. One thing that I know I've noticed, I mean I've experienced this personally, but also several people who I've had on the show have said how. Going into design as a career was not something that was seen as a lucrative thing. It was a hobby. It was something you did on the side, but you would have to get a job that actually made you some money. So I don't know if part of that is just the tired adage of the starving artist, but I think it's also maybe just a lack of information to know that design can be 
it can be something you can go into and make a career out of and make a living off of and make money off of. And so part of that is, you know, maybe for parents and maybe for, you know, students as well, is kind of shifting that mindset from being a consumer to a creator, I think is important. Um, and something else that we discussed in the panel, and this is particularly for current designers, is to shift from the mindset of creator to chronicler. And so the web itself is a very ephemeral medium. A lot of the work that we are done is often passed over in a redesign. Maybe it's in the Internet Archive. I don't know, possibly. But like, good luck trying to find some websites from 10 years ago. You know, there hasn't been any kind of real way to save a lot of the work that we're doing. Yes, we can put it in a portfolio. But even then, that just might only paint you as being someone who can do the work technically. But what's the process behind it? And so one of the things since I won the Stephen Heller Award earlier this year uh, that has been in my mind is how do designers, particularly designers of color, particularly black designers, change the mindset from just being creators to being chroniclers to writing about your work, writing about what you're feeling, writing about these cultural things to help contribute to the overall, as I've called it, the overall corpus of design history. But just making sure that your words and your perspectives are out there and not it can be in a medium blog or something. I think that's that's fine. I'm I'm certainly not eschewing using technology to make this happen. But I think that the writing definitely needs to happen because what we're seeing, particularly in the design industry, is that more and more of the voices that are always being put out there are not of the same people who are actually doing the work. So you're not seeing it from women of color. You're not seeing it from people in the LGBTQ community. You're really not hearing a lot of international voices, a lot of brown voices. And so if design is something that is truly for everyone, if design is something that we all experience in one shape, form or fashion, then we all need to see or, or at least hear from the perspectives of the people that are doing that design. For people who are doing design work, but maybe it's not always visual, then how can they chronicle what they're doing? I think if it's, if it's not visual, that's probably even easier to do <laughs> like i'll give you an example there's a lot of ux out there a lot of people that are ux designers ux developers ux strats whatever the the term is there's a lot of ux out there is what i'm trying to say writing case studies writing up the methods that you've used to do research and things of that nature uh-huh. are really easy ways just to kind of get that information out there everything doesn't necessarily have to be a visual gallery in a portfolio if you have a visual gallery, that's great. But why don't you talk about your creative process behind it? How did you come to that idea? How did you decide what tools you want to use? What were the feelings that you wanted to get across for this particular design that you've made? Whether it's artistic or utilitarian, what were the decisions that you came to in order to produce this end result? And so if being a designer is not really about the tools you're using, then what is the breadth of what it means to be a designer? Like, are there people who are designers and they don't even realize that that's what they're doing because they don't see themselves as somebody who is using Adobe's creative suite? I think so. I definitely think so. I mean, part of that may be just how they decide to define themselves, but then it may also just be a lack of, of information. You know, one thing that we see in this industry is that titles can change a lot. When I started almost 20 years ago, you were a web designer, a web designer, a graphic designer or a webmaster. Like that was kind of it, unless you just did software. And now there's all kinds of different product designers and UX designers, et cetera. And even that title can change based on where you work, whether it's the company you're at, whether it's the market that you're in. A UX designer in California and a UX designer in Mississippi might be doing two entirely different things from day to day, but they have the exact same title. So I think, yeah, it is important to be able to talk about that in a way where folks can see kind of the diversity that's even within the field. And again, in this point, we're not talking about racial or ethnic or any other kind of diversity. We're looking at this point just strictly at the job that you're doing, the work that you're doing. And that can help inform more people about what it is that folks in the industry do in these different types of roles. I like your focus on writing and, and sort of chronicling your process as you create because it has a dual function effect of not only producing content for other designers to consume so that you you increase you know the the knowledge of ways to do things but you also as you as you're pointing out increase the visibility of the people doing this and when those people are from marginalized communities 
suddenly it becomes more obvious that these are the people there doing the work every day. Yeah, those chronicles sound like a great idea because it helps people picture themselves doing it, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I can you know even give like a historical example to this. Uh, W.B. Du Bois, who is um, well-known, I think, in African-American history, we've just recently discovered, I think within the past maybe three or four years, that he also was creating charts and graphs in like the 1900s. And this, this information came out so we could see, oh, not only was W.B. Du Bois like really fighting for civil rights, but also he was like a pretty dope designer, too. You know, so like just the fact that we now know that and this was well over 100 years since that has happened is amazing. Wow. Yeah. And I think also that sort of getting behind the scenes and showing that your process is also a way of making the like, as you're saying, Jessica, it makes the work more accessible. It makes it possible for someone who doesn't do it every day to see, oh, there is a process to this. You don't just have to be a genius and you sit down and boom, magic design arrives, you know, <laughs> on the computer screen. It's like there's a there's a way you work it. Oh, and if there are steps that you can go through, then maybe I can learn those steps. Absolutely. Uh, there's someone who I had on the show. Uh, I think it was earlier this year. Her name is Kim Goldburn. She's a she calls herself a chronic creator in New York City. And what I love about the work that she does is that she really does like she'll do videos. She'll write about the work that she's doing and the roadblocks that she's gotten into. And I think it's really important to be able to see that. Like you've said earlier there, it's important to see that this is what the is. It's not perfect from start to finish. There are starts and stops and, you know, there's crosses of conscience and there's, there's all these sorts of things that go into the work. And so it's important to know that there are fallible moments in what could look like a perfect process. If you're only focusing on the end result. That's so true. Speaking of the end result, I was wondering, we talk sometimes in my circles about how it's totally not fair for companies to like want to look at your GitHub and expect you to have open source contributions because that's exclusionary because not everybody has time to go home after work and make open source contributions. But yet as designers, you typically have a portfolio. Mm -hmm. Where do you get that? Is, does, I mean, does the same problem exist? I would say yes and no, only because I think as any designer knows, there's a lot of people that are hired with weak portfolios. The portfolio helps to be able to show that you are capable of doing the work. But how you lay out the portfolio, I think, is important. If you've just got a bunch of images like a slideshow, that doesn't, that doesn't really help. So having writing along with that to explain, you know, this was the client, this is the process that we took, you know, or maybe taking that, turning into a case study, turning into a white paper, I think not only shows that, yes, you can do the work, but that also you're able to come up with the strategy and the execution and the decisions and the research behind doing the work, which I think is most important when it comes to trying to get hired somewhere. They, they want to see what your thinking process is. I mean, that's why hopefully we do interviews is so we can at least see how this person thinks and acts and talks to see not only is what they presented us in their resume good, but can they back it up? The portfolio, hopefully, is the way to back that up. Again, how you choose to display that is what is going to be the difference, I think, between maybe getting noticed and maybe not getting noticed, between getting hired and not getting hired. Um, so I don't think it's exclusionary in the way that it would be for developers because it's really up to the designers on how they decide to, to put their portfolio together. What is exclusionary, and like I said before, is that some people have weak portfolios and still get hired. So it ends up being more of a like a who you know kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, but if you've like... got your portfolio and you certainly explain this is what your work is, no one can take that part away from you. So the design of your design portfolio matters. <laughs> Absolutely. Morris, do you have any examples of some people who are doing the chronicling that you're talking about really well that we can share with listeners? Kim Goldburn is one person whom I mentioned. I think you can just search for her on Medium is where she's been writing about some design stuff. Uh, there's another person who I interviewed, I think, right around the same time as Kim. Her name is Ekpemi Ani. She also does a lot of writing around the work that she does. Sonongo Akpem, who's a designer. I think he's currently in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He puts out a regular newsletter. I think it's like maybe every month or so. He puts out a newsletter where he talks about his projects and what he's working on. That's what I can think of off the top of my head who's really doing it, which 
I think the fact that I'm straining to think of people, considering how many folks I've talked to, is probably telling about how more people need to do it. So I can answer this question a lot easier. But definitely uh, check those people out and see what they're doing. Sweet. I think that makes this a good time for reflections. So I think this code switching discussion has been really interesting to me that the terminology is new and I, I find it a really useful sort of handle for looking at that concept. And one of the things I've been thinking about is, A, it's useful to think about it in context of my own behavior, sort of think, when am I doing this? When am I not doing this? What situations, you know, force me to do this or, or that kind of thing. But I think I can take it a step further and use it as a, as a practice for increasing empathy by trying to determine if other people are code switching in a certain situation and see, like trying to imagine what sort of work they're currently doing to try and fit themselves into the current social context as a way of trying to relate to them better and maybe understand like what sort of stresses they're under and, and what their, their context might be. Yeah. I've been thinking about the code switching thing too has been on my mind. Probably the biggest thing when I started thinking about code switching in general, it seemed like something at some subtle level we do all the time. No matter, you know, we talk to a different person, we code switch to a context of that person. But the thing that you were talking about of being an outsider in this alternative context, I'm a woman and typically I'm often the only woman in a context. And that doesn't necessarily make me feel all that outsider-ish necessarily. And so, whereas like the things that you were talking about, that level of inverseness of being outsider of, of switching to that degree of that, I don't think I've really experienced. And so the thing I'm kind of walking away with is like, I should like go and do something where I actually feel like an outsider in this alternative context to have an experience like that that's firsthand. So that's something I'm going to walk away with. Something that Marty said really, really early struck me. He said that his superpower of empathy helps him with storytelling and experience creating. And experience creating is like storytelling, but in the future. And I love that through his work on Glitch and also like these chronicles of how, these are all spreading the ability to other people to do that storytelling in the future. I think my reflection would be on what you mentioned about designers, Maurice, about not designers, but the parents and how they think about whether or not their child wants to pursue a career in design and if that's a good or bad thing based off of this idea of moving from being a consumer uh, to being a creator. And I think that there's something about that transition that seems to be relevant, not only just to design, but maybe to what's going on in a bigger sense of how our societies are functioning and also how they're being run, where because of some of the advances that have occurred with technology, it does allow for more creation. Like what you were talking about at one point, Jessica, about the, that we do have this ability to create things that we want and that this kind of transition from going from just being a consumer and just taking in things versus really starting to think about creating things um, may be a really good way to approach building more empathy and thinking more consciously about what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it. I think uh, the reflection that I can take away is that mainly we all have more work to do and that we all probably have privileges that we're blind to that allow us to uh, maybe empathize and even help other people. Uh, and the example that I'm thinking of particularly is speaking at YouTube. I mean, I thought it was great that they allowed me there. And I mentioned this while I was on the panel because there were people that were there that were like, well, you know, I don't know how I can get out there and work in my community. And I'm like, you work at YouTube. Don't you think if you go out and just tell someone, hey, I work at YouTube, that they're not going to have a ton of questions for you and that you may be able to help them out in some way. And I don't know if it's just the insularity of being in that ecosystem where maybe it doesn't mean anything in that environment in general, but it means a lot. In most other places, whether you think it does or not, it's kind of like a trust symbol or something. I don't know that your work is this good that you work for one of these websites that is as well known as YouTube. And clearly you have something to say. So I think, you know, depending on where we're at in, in life, where we're at in our career, et cetera, 
there's a lot that we can bring to the table to help people out that we may not be aware of. And sometimes that takes a little bit of, you know, introspection to kind of figure out what those things are. So, yeah, just look inward for the answer. This is where you can put like a finger symbol in or something like that and post. I don't know. But <laughs> Thank you. All right. Great. Yeah. John, you do the outro because you did the intro. I didn't do the intro. I did the intro. I don't mind doing it. You want to do it, Astrid? Go ahead, John. Okay. We can do it together. Okay. Why don't you do it together? That's okay. fun. Okay. So I'll say a line and then we'll see if we can keep up. So. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of Greater Than Code. Come on, John. Oh, I thought it was the two of you, not the two of us. <laughs> the two of us. <laughs> Thank God for editing. Uh, <laughs> if you would like to continue the conversation from this episode, you can join us in our private Slack group. The way you can join our Slack group is by giving to us on Patreon at any amount. And you can find the donate button at greaterthancode.com slash Patreon? Or, no, patreon.com slash greaterthancode. <laughs> We're doing great. We're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> so that you can continue to hear conversations just like this in our laughs. <laughs> <laughs>